Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Purpose can sneak up on you. It can seize control of your life when you least expect it. And that's exactly what happened to Jeff Miller. In 2006, Miller was living a relatively quiet life in Hendersonville, North Carolina, running a third-generation dry cleaning business, while he and his wife, Tam, raised their young son, One light bulb moment changed everything. Spurred by the pioneering efforts of Ohio physician's assistant Earl Morse, Miller came up with a bold idea. What if he and his friends chartered a jetliner to take aging veterans from his area to see the new World War II memorial in Washington, D.C.? Miller had zero experience in the charter business, And this was an expensive undertaking, riddled with various logistical challenges. Many people thought they would never get off the ground. Some airline folks refused to even take his calls. But his idea touched a nerve, first in his community, then across the country. Meet Jeff Miller, co-founder of the Honor Flight Network. You grew up in this community surrounded by World War II veterans. How did that influence your life? I was part of it every day. I, I was, my dad was a World War II veteran uh, in the Navy. My mother lost her, uh, lost her brother in World War II. So I grew up in a very patriotic home, very patriotic neighborhood. And what I always noticed with that generation is they always took care of each other. Uh, there was, There was always that kind of have your back thing with every family. So I listened to the stories, sucked them up. Uh, back then, TV was, a lot of the shows on TV were based on events that happened in World War II. You know, 12 o'clock high, combat. We watched them all. It was, it was always a part of it. 
in fact, your house grew because of that's right these people, right? Yeah, in in our neighborhood, um, like I said, everybody would look out for each other, and if you needed something, the neighborhood would go. And we had a little two bedroom, one bath house for years, and my dad really wanted to have a den, uh, another bedroom, and another bathroom, and the whole neighborhood came together and and over a few months built that addition on our house and we enjoyed it it's great there's something very symbolic to me about that these guys came back from the war and they built a new america this post-war america and they literally helped do it for your family yeah i mean if you think they grew up in the depression and if you didn't help each other back then there's a good chance you weren't going to make it through it and they carried that right through World War II and then to, they just came back. If you think about it, they rebuilt the world and they rebuilt America and they didn't look for any credit for it or anything. They just, uh, they kept that foxhole mentality of, I'm here to get you home and I'm here to make sure if we take care of each other, we've got a better chance of surviving. And then they carried that through to their death. Tell me about your mom and dad. Mom and dad met after the war. Uh, my father uh, was not born here. He moved into this area and with his family, he had three brothers. Uh, they had a farm, they farmed some, and then they were in the laundry and dry cleaning business too. And uh, mom grew up here many generations. Uh, her family was from Hendersonville. They had an old country store up on Main Street and grew up very similar, didn't have a lot. Uh, they grew a lot of their own food. Uh, Dad did. And, you know, they, they were just that greatest generation, that Depression era. Uh, Dad was six years older than Mom. And they just, with five, with four kids and then your father in it as he was, there wasn't a lot to go around. <clears throat> and they made best, they do. I never felt like we were poor, um, but in looking back as, as things are now, I realized that, you know, I didn't swim in a swimming pool until I was probably six or seven years old. We were always in lakes and uh, you always had the, the used car, kind of the hand-me-down thing, and, uh, but it was always great. You know, I was never hungry. Uh, Mom and Dad were great providers. She sewed and made some of her clothes, made some of mine. You don't see that anymore. You can't even find an alterations person, hardly. And, uh, you know, we canned beans and we froze corn and all this stuff every year, grew it all. So you just, you grew up very differently, but as in a loving home, I'm an only child. And uh, it was, they were really good for each other. Dad met my mother at a lake, it was uh, called Laurel Park Lake. And he said she had a little white two-piece bathing suit on, and he never looked at another woman. And I believe it. They were on. He was very, very committed to her. They were, they were great parents. I was lucky. What about the values shaped you? I don't think, you know, a lot of us grew up, obviously, in that time with uh, being associated with those values 
you appreciate what you have. You take nothing for granted. You had this work hard mentality that you better do your share. You better you know, toe that line. Don't expect somebody else to do it for you. And that's how a lot of us grew up. Most of us from that era. And with, with mom and dad, there was never a question. They both worked. Uh, I would go to school inside the city, which I was outside that district, but they permitted us to be in there because we had a business inside the city. And every day I would walk to the laundry where my dad was and wait there until mom got off from the bank or dad got off to go home. And, you know, you, you just, you didn't go around expecting somebody to do something for you. You just worked, but you also had that good feeling all the time that you were protected. And as long as you uh, did your part and were respectful and you darn sure were taught to be respectful and civil, that uh, things would be okay. What did you learn about having a dream? I don't know, you know, as far as I never had this vision of what I wanted to be or where I was going. Uh, I always liked just being in the woods and doing stuff with like that, just camping and things. And I was not a real driven kid. I didn't have something that I really was just stoked about doing. But I saw how my parents were and what they had, and I hoped to have something like that. I, I hoped to, uh, you know, have the little the little house and the little ideal neighborhood, or or at least maybe near near some woods or something where you still have the animals and things to deal with the birds. I, if you've been here, you've seen what I like to do here. But you know, I, I just. I never had this dream of accomplishing something, which is probably not good, but that was just my personality. I wanted to do my share. I wanted to fit in. And I just wanted to, uh, you know, have a chance at, at that lifestyle. And I didn't probably work as hard at it in school as I should have, but I wasn't a great student. But I always <clears throat> worked hard. Uh, outside of that and I didn't mind working at all. Well, you had to work pretty hard in the laundry business, right? Yeah, it's a hot business. It's not pretty. I don't know of anyone I've ever talked to that said when they grow up, they want to be in the laundry business. But, and I didn't want to be in that. I didn't really think that I did, but over time after going through school, graduating and working some other jobs, I realized that it wasn't a bad thing. And I got to work with my dad, who was my best friend, and I've never met anybody better than him. I got to spend a lot of time with him, and we were good for each other. He was very, very um, tight with money. He didn't really want to expand, and I had these visions of I wanted to grow like crazy. And I was probably a little reckless. He was a little tight. And over time, the two things came together and we complimented each other and we did good things. And so time moves along and a couple of things happen that push you toward a very different reality. The first, of course, are the death of both deaths of your parents. Tell me about how that influenced you. My father 
like I said, he and I were, were extremely close, and I could could see back in 2003 that he was really going down. And I pull into the laundry, the parking lot, and he was sitting in his truck and he motioned for me. And he said, sit down and keep your mouth shut. Because what I'm going to tell you, you're not going to like, but you need to listen to it. And he pulled out all these sheets of paper and these different files. He goes, I don't feel right. I don't think I'm going to be alive in six months. You need to have all this information because you've got to take care of your mother. He had life insurance policies. He had bank accounts, uh, safety deposit boxes, and funeral instructions. And he just handed me all that stuff, and we had to sit there and talk about it. I didn't argue with him. And uh, less than six months later, he was dead. And he didn't even have a diagnosis at that time. But uh, he had a uh, cancerous meningitis that once they found it, and it was very close to after we talked, it, it was over. Uh, my mother had Alzheimer's at that point. And so we had three years of her going through that hell. And uh, it totally changed her personality. She uh, went from being the happy little uh, sweet lady to a very unhappy person. And that was hard because we were close families, just three of us. And we, uh, you know, you deal with it. The Alzheimer's was terrible to see somebody you love that much go through it. And, but we, we handled it and we learned lessons on how to make it not so hard on her. But then when they were gone, the void that's there, you, you basically, you're old, but you're an orphan. And I had no brothers or sisters to, to go back to, and there was just a big void there. We were, we were close and proud of how we took care of Mom, as I promised Dad. The last thing he told me, he promised me you'll take care of your mother. And, uh, I did. And uh, then, you, then you just start. The, the really bad part is you can't ask them questions anymore. You have something to think of and you want to ask them. You can't do it. You, I used to pick up my phone and go, that's stupid. And I just automatically pick it up to call them. But everybody has to go through it in the natural order of things. And you just deal with it. And I'm sure it wasn't any harder for me than it was for most people. But it still stinks. And this longing to feel close to your mom and dad, was leading you towards something that you didn't realize it at that time. Yeah, I had no idea. <clears throat> and my mother, uh, as I think you and I talked about a little bit before, had this trunk that she kept in the bedroom when we were when I was growing up, and it followed her wherever. And it was hands off, couldn't touch it. And after she died, I went over and opened that trunk and found all these treasures from her brother letters back and forth from she and her brother when he was um, in the Air Corps, World War II, found his flight log, found her diary, found the telegram that he was missing, the telegram he was killed. And uh, love letters from mom and dad that they'd kill me, they knew I read. But read those, just sweet, just sweet. All the words they use, like everything swell. You know, it was just a very different, different time. 
And uh, then I found also the, where they were charter members of the World War II Memorial, which I had been also, and we'd never talked about it. I didn't know it. And they've given a good bit of their money to that. And neither one of them ever got to say it. <clears throat> and that was, that was disappointing, disturbing. I thought about it a lot. And that's where the next big part of my life ended up being focused on was trying to get their friends and, and anyone else from that generation up to see that memorial. When did you first hear the name Earl Morse? 2005, because the memorial didn't open till then. And I, we were down in Charleston, and my wife Tamara handed me this newspaper article and said, look at this, this guy's doing something pretty cool. And it was uh, a story about Earl Morse, and he's a pilot, and he and his dad, uh, he was also a uh, physician's assistant working in the VA, and all his World War II patients, when they'd come in, he'd talk to them, are you going to go see your memorial? And without fail, they all said, no, I'm too old, I can't go. So he got pilots in that uh, Springfield area, Ohio, and through there. And they would take their private planes and they would fly from there into Manassas. And uh, this was a story about Earl's efforts there. Fly two, say they have six planes, 12 at a time, I think was the first one. And he was doing that. And I, it was a great story to me. I, I'm not a pilot, though. It wasn't anything I could do. My mother was still alive then, anyway. And, uh, you know how something just sticks in, in the back of your head. I guess I just logged it there. And uh, later when I found this treasure trove of things and realized that they'd never gotten to see it, it all started kind of coming together. That's, uh, that's when I told Tam, I said, you remember that story, uh, that, that pilot? She said, yeah, because I couldn't remember his name at that time. We had to go back and do a little research. And... Uh, I said, I want to do that, but I want to do it differently. I want to charter planes and do it and get all of mom and dad's friends from here. Because there were a lot of them in 2006. There were still a lot of World War II veterans alive relative to now. And uh, that that's where it kind of got its birth, uh, purely where it's it all kind of started coming together. And So what was the first step you took? I came home. I called three of my you know, close friends here in Hendersonville, asked them to meet with me, and I told them what I wanted to do. And I, these are folks that, you know, if they say you're off base on something, they'll tell you. And they all liked it. And uh, we decided to take it to the next step and throw it out there and start seeing if we could find a plane, uh, if, you know, what it would entail to do it. And I called Earl. I tracked him down finally, and I called him and told him what I wanted to do. And he was supportive, but he was like, how much? And I told him what our numbers at that time uh, were looking like. And he goes, wow, I just don't think you can do that. I don't think you can raise that much money because we've been trying to, and we haven't been able to. And that's when I said, well, would you like me to call it on a flight like your organization? And he said, no. Uh, I'll help you, but I don't want to have a failure on my on, on our name right now because we're doing pretty well. And I understood that. I did. And so that's why we called ours Honor Air. 
I hung the phone up and that was the name that came to me. Don't know why, but that's what came. And, and let's talk about what was the idea at that point? That idea was we were going to put it out there. We were going to charter big jets like 737s that would hold 150 or more people. And we were going to get put articles in the newspaper, hopefully have television coverage, put it out there for veterans to call in and sign up. And we would assign support staff like uh, to, to go with these folks because they were in their mid-80s around then, 80s up. And then we would fly them up to D.C. for the day and fly them back home. And it was all, uh, you know, it was at the very infancy of the idea. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot, and the birth of an American icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Did you understand what a logistical mountain this was? I didn't fully understand it by a long shot, but that's why I got a guy named Frank Shell, who had a travel agency that only traveled with senior citizens. And I knew if anybody could hit it right, Frank could. And he was one of the guys I had right there sitting with me the first time. And he, he was, he was, and still is, he's not, he sold the business and has since retired, but he was a stickler for details. He, when we decided we're going to do it, he went to D.C. the week before we went up, had a bicycle, and he rode his bike to each stop we were going to do, which were minimal at that time. But he knew where the buses would be, how many steps from the bus to the memorial, any kind of things that would uh, be a problem, maybe. So if I get any credit, it should be that I had really smart friends and I could pick them well. And we had marketing people at one point. We had our medical team. As the conversations grew, and there were many, many conversations before we actually did it, you know, we had worst-case scenario. Two hours, we just talked worst-case scenario. And it took from the time we all talked about it till the time we flew. It was nine months, I guess. So it wasn't like... We thought of it, and two months later, I tried to force it too fast, and they basically told me it wasn't going to happen. 
and, and David Reeves was uh, one of the guys that was helping us find the jet and everything. We had just struck out with a guy over in Asheville that we thought might help us get a big jet. And how much money were we talking about at that point? We were certain it was going to be just for the aircraft somewhere uh, fifty to $75,000, which it, it turned out it wasn't that much. But that everything you could find uh, in searching and talking to people, it was pretty high. And a lot of the airlines didn't even want to talk to you at that point, right? Yeah, we couldn't even get a return call from an airline. So we were out looking at charter companies. The charter companies then go to an airline and they're the middle person. And so you're paying for the middle person and the airline. And so the prices were real high. So uh, it was a little discouraging at moments, but we did, uh, <clears throat> one of the guys we had on our group was a state senator at the time, Tom Apodaca. And he said, why don't you call this guy? His name's Chuck Allen. And he's with U.S. Airways, and he's a uh, government relations guy. And I called Chuck, and we talked. And uh, he was like, so what do you want to do? I said, I'm, I want to rent a jet, a charter jet. I don't want it free because I think if you give me a fair price on a jet, we may have something going nationally. And I want you to look when you have aircraft sitting on the ground doing nothing for you. And that's the days I want to get them. And he was funny. He goes, so you're in the charter business or something? I said, no. He goes, so you're uh, travel. I said, no. He goes, what do you do? I said, I'm in the dry cleaning business. There's a dead silence. I said, Chuck, how old are you? And he, he was a couple years older than me. I said, <clears throat> I bet your dad was in World War II, maybe even your mom, too. Either way, you know they both worked at it. He goes, yeah. I said, do they deserve to see their memorial? And he goes, I'll call you back. And I'm sure you weren't in the charter business at that point. <laughs> we didn't know what we were right there, but he did call back. And uh, he gave us a price, and it was great. I mean, it was like, as well as our members, around $35,000, $36,000. And still, that's a lot of money to raise in a small city like Asheville. Shoot, man, when we finally got this, not Asheville, it was Hendersonville. Well, Hendersonville at that yeah, time, right? I mean, population city Hendersonville at that time was probably less than 10,000 people. And county, 100,000, somewhere near 120. And when we finally announced it in uh, 12 weeks, we raised $130,000. So we didn't charter one jet, we chartered 30. And also, you had kids out selling, you had scouts out raising money. Everybody jumped Everybody. Out. They were out in front of Walmart doing it. Um, American Legion, they had a uh, spaghetti dinner. I think it raised like $1,200 to spaghetti dinner. And, and like we said, that's a lot of spaghetti. But I would just walk down the street and people would hand me money. Here, I want to give to this. Um, individual donations. We At that time, I think $300 would sponsor a veteran to go. And we had tons of checks coming in to sponsor a veteran. We didn't have any big corporate money. We had, we had at that point, it was just individual donations, and we never had to worry about money. We did 
19 flights originally out of this area when rotary clubs got involved, which were the rotary clubs were a godsend. They, I think, uh, they totally understand what it is to go out and give. And they were a huge help. So it was, uh, once the word got out, and that was, that was tough sometimes getting coverage because people, no one had ever done it. And the media wasn't real receptive to doing a big story about it because I think they thought it was kind of far-fetched that it would work. But you caught a break. You got a call from CBS. Sure did. Um, Bill Geist, producer, CBS Sunday Morning News, called us. And Bill Geist was a combat reporter in Vietnam. So he kind of, he understood, he got it. I didn't talk to Bill until he showed up here in Hendersonville, but they told us that they wanted to come into town the week before we flew and interview the veterans and tell the veteran stories. And that was what we wanted because the veteran story is what makes us successful. And he did. He came into town and he spent, I guess it's about four or five days here interviewing veterans. And uh, <clears throat> then they did the first trip with us on that Saturday, September 23rd. And on Sunday morning, when we were back up there for our second trip, we did back-to-back -back trips that day. We did not know any better. And he was showing the story that morning from 9 to 10.30, and it was like an eight-minute story, which on television, national news, when you get eight minutes, it's huge. And he did an incredible job of, of telling the story and how we developed. And... People saw it and came out to the memorials looking for us that next day because they had seen it in the morning. We were there right after it aired, and they were there in, in droves to meet our veterans. When we got back, my wife had flown with us the first day, but not the second. She was like, you have like 300 messages you have to return. And... You know, that was when you had landlines and your phones were, were listed with uh, yellow pages and everything. And people had just gone to track down our house number and were just calling and calling and calling. Emails were coming in, some they had tracked us down. So that was how the big picture started. Earl Morris, by that time, had started flying commercially. He would go buy blocks of seats uh, with Southwest Air. And so he was, he, I invited him that Saturday to meet us. And Earl came with a few veterans that day. And that was the first time Earl and I got to meet. Uh, I had called him, I guess it was a couple of months before we actually flew. And I was giving him a little bit of a hard time. I said, Earl, you're right. We couldn't raise enough money to do that flight. And he was like, well, I'm sorry. You know, I really hoped you could. I said, but we did raise enough to do three. And he was very uh, supportive and everything. And, and he was never not supportive. He just was protective. And like I said, I didn't have a problem with that. But he came up and when he's in the video. When uh, If you watched it at the very end, I tried to get um Bill to interview Earl also, but they don't like to mix stories. And 
but that was the that was the thing that really as we tell bill he gave us our wings our long-term wings and that story we to this day we use it to raise money to fly vietnam veterans you're a dry cleaner yeah. from north carolina and you did something that captured the imagination of the whole country how does that feel I mean, you're very proud of it, but it's not something even in 13 years that I've ever really been able to just sit back and think about because if I do think about it, I think about this community and how this community embraced it. There's not, I'm sure there's a lot of places that would, but I like to think that, that Hendersonville and Henderson County was exceptional. And, and what we did, our, our team, what that little group of people did was create an opportunity that people from every walk of life could participate in, contribute to, uh, be involved in, uh, in, some, in some capacity. You know, rich people write, you know, write checks, a person that doesn't have a lot of uh, disposable income could give a couple of bucks or they could go work with the scouts and help them raise money or go work down at the American Legion and sell spaghetti. Uh, we, we created an opportunity for everybody to do something good for a generation that no one could dispute had saved the world and given us all an incredible opportunity to, uh, to have good things and have freedom, most importantly, and an opportunity to enjoy life. And that was, that's how I see it more than anything, is that even then, and you look at now, you watch the news, you hear all the bad stuff. Uh, there's a lot of good people out there. And if you create an opportunity, uh, they come out and do things. You just got create an opportunity and we were fortunate that we were in that place to do it. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Tell me about a typical honor flight these days. Our, our flights now, well, we go out of uh, Asheville Regional Airport and we fly into Baltimore BWI. It takes about an hour, hour and five minutes. We leave uh, around 8.30 in the morning, so hopefully we're on the ground there, 9.30, 9.45. takes us about an hour to load the buses and about 30 to 40 minutes, depending on traffic, to get from BWI to our first stop, which is Lincoln the Lincoln Memorial, the Korean War Memorial, Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Now that's with police escorts, and that makes all the difference. All the difference. <laughs> um, as like you saw, it's uh, it's you have a spear guiding you through it all. But uh, we'll spend two hours at that first stop at Lincoln, Korea, and Vietnam. Then we load back on. They have their lunches on board. We drive around D.C. with the police leading us, and we have tour guides on every bus. And we do a tour of D.C. Uh, from that point, we go over to uh, the World War II Memorial. And we're usually there. I think we got there about 2 o'clock. We're there till around 3. From there, we drive over across the bridge. We go see the Air Force Memorial. Sometimes we'll get out. Depends on time. 
and the Iwo Jima Memorial, the Marine Corps Memorial. We go by the Pentagon and uh, discuss the 9-11 events there. And then we go to Arlington National Cemetery and we drive up to the amphitheater and watch the changing of the guard. All our veterans get, they're in wheelchairs, get a very special placement on the backside that used to be reserved for media, which is now reserved for uh, our veterans. They are, the old guard there is so respectful and kind to our veterans and love to, to honor them, all arrows of them. We stay there, uh, we're there usually around an hour total. Uh, load up with lunches and I mean our dinners and then we head back to BWI which again is about a 30 to 40 minute drive get on the plane at uh, we start loading the plane about six o'clock and hopefully by 730 we are wheels up on the way back to Asheville land there around 830 quarter nine and the welcome home begins which as you saw this last one uh, the folks there said there are around 1,300 people from all walks of life, every age, from Cub Scouts to World War II veterans there to greet these veterans and welcome home, uh, give them a proper welcome home. And if you could stand there and not be affected by that, you don't have a pulse. <laughs> I don't want to know you, that's for sure. <laughs> what was it in your background that allowed you to think, yeah, you know, why not give this a shot? This might be possible. The the, the art of the possible that, that you had. I had no reason to not think it was possible. I guess maybe I'd never tried something on that level and struck out. You know, if I had, maybe I would have been discouraged. But to me, it was so obvious that it could be successful and when you got the pieces put together, that's why I didn't want a free jet. If we'd have gotten a free aircraft, everybody would have said, U.S. Airways donated their aircraft, and U.S. Airways couldn't donate. We've chartered through U.S. Airways and American Airlines through the Armed Flight Network close to 700 jets. I mean, that's huge. They couldn't give away 700 jets. Uh, so that was why, you know, that I did it that way. If we put reasonable pieces in place, then I felt like it can work, but I knew we had to get it right because if we screwed up on the first one, that would have been the story as opposed to look at these veterans getting their day of honor that they've waited 59 and a half, 60 years to get. So some of it, you know, Keith, it may be that I didn't know any better uh, and naive but that's why I pulled those people in and asked them because I brought in some folks that would have flat told me no I mean they're they're my friends but they have no problem uh, you know, looking at you and telling you you're crazy and they didn't there wasn't one blink and then we just added to that committee as, as we went along and I don't ever remember anyone saying maybe we, this isn't going to work out. Not one time, even when we were struggling to find an aircraft. And pieces kind of fell into place. Uh, we just we kept 
working at it and and the support I had from those folks, Dave Adams, he's the money guy. He's my best friend. And he's, I don't do anything without Dave involved. I run everything by him. And he's uh, never blanked. He's still with me. He still manages all the money. He is just a detailed person. You never worry about anything. Um, you know, we pulled in Mike Murdoch, who was a veteran service and still is a veteran service officer, retired Marine. He handled all uh, getting the, helping us get the veterans and taking the phone calls for them. He's the guy that came back to us after we were going to do our first flight, September 23rd. And we did a small story in a local newspaper. They did a little blurb about it. It, it was not good. And I went back to the editor and I asked him uh, to do a better story. And he did. He did a story on a Saturday morning, bottom half of the local paper, which everybody reads that part of the local section. He told a real good story. And Mike called me, Murdoch, the veteran service guy, on Monday morning. And he goes, we got to have a meeting. I was like, are you all right? And he goes, yeah. So he came in. I had our little group there. And he just looked at us. And he goes, we got to get a bigger plane. I said, what? He goes, I had 98 messages on my voicemail. And the only reason I just had 98 is they were telling me about their service. And that's when we knew we had to get, couldn't get a bigger plane. I wasn't going to bring a 747 in, although some people have done that. We just went ahead and called U.S. Airways, and we booked that 737 for Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, it, it's just, it evolved from the idea and it never wavered from the idea it just got more details and it became more and more believable and it was we knew we were going to do it eventually you found the honor flight network people like you across the country how did that happen that was uh earl and i as we like i said we met september 23rd 2006 first time we met and he was flying commercial at that point. We were doing charter, and we kept talking uh, even after that. And uh, we decided we needed to have, because he had gotten a ton of calls. <clears throat> he ended up getting uh, ABC News Person of the Week, and ABC News did a story on him. And so he was getting covered up by that point with questions and people wanting to do you know same thing somewhere else. So... We had it. We decided to have a conference. Uh, he called it the summit in Washington in February of 2007. And we had maybe 30 people come to it because we really didn't know how to get all the information out. People, you know, and he, he told his part about doing commercial flights, how to do that piece. <clears throat> Dave Adams and I went up there and told our part about doing uh, all the uh, charter side of it. And when we were doing all our charter, we had a feeling it was going to work. So we kept really detailed notes. A guy named Henry Johnson was our uh, he's retired Air Force uh, pilot. He did all the record keeping and writing and he created an honor. We called it honor air for dummies. And if 
you were really interested in doing that. We sent you this. It's like seven pages, everything from the 501c3 down to your board structure and everything. We were pretty detailed on what we wanted for our honorary group. If you were going to emulate us, we wanted you to stick to some basic nuts and bolts. And, and they were a challenge, some of them. You had to go through a lot to do it. And if you did that, then we sent you about a 30-page version of all of that, that that Henry put together. And so we took that with us up to Washington, and we shared that, and it got incorporated into uh, what we call the Honor Flight Networks. Some of the stuff, they became better and better over time. But Earl and I met up there in uh, February of 2007, we presented some things just to share with people how to do it. And then he and I walked over to an IHOP and we sat down. And that's when we came up with, let's just create a, a mothership and let's call it the Honor Flight Network. And we'll let that organization be kind of the pivot point for everybody to go to first and then spin out from there. And we'll give the best guidance we can and we'll start trying to work out, you know, how to make it easier for people and give folks a definite place to go to, to ask the questions and to get development skills on creating honor flight. So honor air actually ended that day. Honor flight as Earl established it ended that day and it became the honor flight network. And Eventually, everybody started calling them honor flights. There were still several honor airs out there. But we encouraged them to uh, go away from that name. Earl had, had told me, like I said, he, he said, I'd rather you not name it honor flight at the front end because he didn't think we were going to be successful because of the fundraising. And, uh, you know, we did make it. But it uh, we needed to have brand identity, and I knew that. I would have called it our flight to begin with. And so we, we started steering people away from calling them our air so we could have that brand that recognition. Now there's 133 hubs across the country, 42 states. They fly out of Hawaii. I mean, uh, not Hawaii, um, Alaska into uh, D.C. And that's like a four or five day trip because that's a big hop. And it, it's it worked out well, and in, in, in D.C., everybody knows what our flight is. We've worked out incredible deals with hotels, bus companies, uh, restaurants, Arby's there. A man you met, I don't know if you got to meet Ace on the trip. Uh, it, it's, it's been an incredible growth and a camaraderie. Stephen Brown, the photographer, that I met on our first trip. I thought he was selling books and we were about to get in a fight and he was giving them away. Uh, what was it about the World War II veterans and the way that we started to embrace them about that time? Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation, Steven Spielberg's work and a lot, a lot of this stuff. Why were we doing it then? Because nobody had done it before. I mean, they were just like, they came back and just went to work. They didn't want to think about it. They didn't want to build a memorial. They just wanted to forget what they'd been in 
they lost many, many years of their lives being away. They just wanted to come back and have a life, a normal life as, as they saw it. <clears throat> and that's when the economy took off and everything. But Tom Brokaw, I guess when you see the people that you've maybe just taken for granted and you realize a lot of them are leaving and you start thinking about the stories and, and I give Tom Brokaw huge credit in waking me up. Uh, Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, those things were like, wow, I've heard about it. But when they started putting them into such a real uh, production, I mean, they didn't hold back much. You just start maybe actually having the time to appreciate it. And you're at a point, folks like me, where I could actually maybe do something about it. Where younger, you don't think about that. You know, you think everybody thinks they're going to live forever when you're young. And, but those people reading that, uh, the greatest generation, and then the greatest generation speaks, and just being more engaged in what really did go on, you realize the enormity of it. You know, the World War II Memorial was the last of the three war memorials, uh, Vietnam, War Memorial, the Korean Veterans Memorial. It was the last one to be built, and it was the one furthest back. When you started experiencing, interacting with these guys, how did it affect you to see how they were experiencing this trip? Yeah, for them, when they, when they come up to you and just hug you and say it was the greatest day of their lives, how does that hit you? <laughs> that hits hard. I mean, it's you, you draw back and you think, how could that be? And how could this be the greatest day of your life? But then you want to make it even better for the next ones. And I can honestly say that, especially the first few years, it got better and better. I mean, the first day we went, we went to the World War II Memorial in Arlington. And this last trip, you saw how many different places we went in a day's time. Same day, same amount of time. But to have somebody say that and you realize they really mean it, they're crying or they bring you a medal that they had or they send you a letter. And I've kept every letter I've ever gotten. And the things that are said in it, you know you're impacting them and I guess that's a lot of the reason 13 years later you know we're still doing it and eventually time marches on and sadly the World War II veterans continue to die off and same with Korea and eventually now you're dominated by world by Vietnam veterans and they bring an entirely different mindset because they never got any parades. They got spat on. Yeah. <clears throat> How do you process that? You know, we've watched generational differences. World War II veterans is a big day for them, but it's almost like a reunion because they had all stayed tight. They did reunions a lot. Korean War veterans, they just couldn't believe anybody really acknowledged the fact that they'd done something. I mean, they 
you know, it's forgotten war, all this stuff. Well, you go talk to South Korea, it's not forgotten. You know, 11th strongest economy in the world, they're free. For these folks to realize that people are recognizing they did something, it's, it's a big deal for them. Vietnam veterans, I mean, <clears throat> most of them came back and just hid, just went in the shadows, didn't wear a hat, said Vietnam veteran, didn't have reunions. You know, it was a totally different group because they were, they were told to not even wear their uniform when they came back into the country. And for these folks to watch them, you know, the wall is like, the most sacred place in Washington. Arlington's in Virginia. That's the most sacred. The wall with 58,000 plus names on it. When you go down there, they're looking at you. I mean, that place is quiet and it's sacred. And when they go to the wall, some of them won't go down there. They'll go on the trip, but they won't go down to the wall. And that's okay. We, we don't insist that they do, but we provide them comrades to go there and, and whatever they want to do, they do. But the most important thing in that whole day of this trip is the thing that we at Honorfly have the least control over, and that's the welcome home. And their day together in D.C., their time together with each other, <clears throat> in D.C., everybody comes up to them and thanks them for their service. They know what honor flights are. They see the hats and they want to thank people. But when they come home and last night, this flight you were on with us, uh, there were 1,300 people in that in Asheville Regional Airport. Now that's a, you know, that's from the police. That's the number they gave us. And every one of them are there not because I've asked them to be there, but because they want to be there. And they want to... You can't make the others, the memories go away, but they want to add a new memory to these folks. And when these veterans see that welcome home, it's life-changing for a lot of them. I mean, they've told me, when you have a veteran that said, for 50 years, I had nightmares every single night. And since I've been back, I haven't had a nightmare. That was a year ago he was on it. Um, you provided closure for that person. Um, we provided something that helped them maybe come out of a dark place. I don't know if... Keith, I don't know if we can give closure. I really don't. But if we can give support and if we can give them a new memory to give them confidence to feel like they didn't do something wrong, that they were sent there. And this is a fresh memory. Fresh memories help a lot. And it was a grand fresh memory. It wasn't a little one. Uh, when you have Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and you have World War II veterans all the way in between, waving flags, shaking your hand, holding up banners, 
and it's all for you. And I, I stop every one of them before they go in there. So I make sure that they get the full experience as, instead of a pack because they like to be in a pack. And then it's, I don't think it's as effective. So we hold them back. And I ask them, I said, welcome home. I want you to look in every person's eyes that are here and see what you mean to them. I said, we, they're here because they want to be. They've had to walk half a mile probably to park and come in. Uh, so take this home with you and, and live with it. And wow, yeah, comments we're getting and just satisfaction of, I mean, you can see it. You saw it. Uh, they're crying, but they're not crying because they're yeah, disappointed for sure. It's that welcome home is incredible. And that one last night, they just keep getting better. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. Because of your idea, which has just grown so big, you've been afforded a lot of opportunities. Um, you've gone to Normandy. You've become friends with Bob Dole and a lot of other great people. Tell me about how this has impacted your life. <laughs> well, the old dry cleaner from Hendersonville wasn't going to get together at the White House <laughs> and meet the president in the Oval Office uh, for doing good dry cleaning. I mean, you're just not going to get that. Uh, Bob Dole, I met him one day at the memorial. I got the nerve up to go speak to him. I guess it's 2006 or early seven, And he had his people investigate us and have become good friends with he and Elizabeth Dole. And they have been so supportive of us. Bob Dole has, has been our biggest fan and we his. I love the man. He is just such a good man. And uh, kidding with him, I was walking through the memorial with him one time. You know, he and Fred Smith raised all the money to build that. It's pretty much all private funds, a little bit of government, but it was mostly private that he and Mr. Smith raised. And, you know, I said, you gotta be proud of this place. And he goes, I am very proud of it. You know, so it's a big memorial, it's a big conflict. And uh, I told him, I said, well, you do know something. And he goes, what? And I said, you built it, but we're filling it up. And he just laughed. And the lady, and I, I'm embarrassed, I can't remember her name, a congresswoman, that first really pointed out we didn't have a World War II memorial. She said that Honor Flight brought the memorial alive. She said they built it. And or you know they found the void there, made sure it was built, but that our flight brought it alive. And you start thinking, you got the Washington Monument on one side of you and the Lincoln Monument on the other, Lincoln Memorial on the other. They never got to see them. You can't go hang out with Lincoln or Washington. But back when we were first starting, you could go to that World War II Memorial and I was in there days, there were over a thousand World War II veterans in there. You could hang out with them. And that place was alive. This last, when I'm there, there were two World War II veterans in there when I was there. When there aren't any, I'll never go back. I don't ever want to go in there when they're gone. Because I, 
had too many good experiences there with them. There's, I don't want to go back. I'll be done. Somebody else can go down in there. Tell me about going to Normandy. Oh, that was neat. Bob Dole. I was. I used to go up and work with Senator Dole, and just help him set up photographs and make sure people didn't grab his arm. And that was just great that I was getting to work with Bob Dole. And we were. I was up there with him one Saturday, and he said, "Well, I'm going to." President Obama asked me to go <clears throat> over to Normandy for the 65th anniversary. And I was like, man, you know, if you need me, you call me. Just kidding. Well, on Monday, or I think it was Monday morning, he called me and he said, you really want to go to Normandy? And I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no. He says, be up here Wednesday night, be at the White House Thursday morning. We're going to ride out to Andrews and fly out with Secretary Shinsheki. And we'll be in Paris for, we were only in Paris, only spent two nights there. But when we got there, it was incredible. We, the next morning, we took a private train from Paris into Cannes, and we were with the 101st Airborne Easy Company. And there's nowhere or with anyone else I would have rather been. You're talking about the band of brothers. The band of brothers. Those, the ones that were capable of traveling. Dick Winters wasn't there. I, I really wanted Dick Winters to be there, but he was he was not doing real well at that point. But a ton of the rest of them were. And I got to sit on that train and just talk to those guys like you and I are talking. And they were very open and very kind. And I got to spend the whole day with them in Normandy, walking around, talking about the things they saw and did. Uh, and it was, I mean, it doesn't even seem real, but it was. Walked the cemetery, walked down to the cliffs, looked down on the beaches. What was going through your mind? Everything from Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, wishing my father and mother could be there with me and, and see this, looking at the cemetery and all those crosses and the Star of David, and looking at the ages of the ones that had a name on them when their lives ended. And it was almost century overload. I walked up on a man, World War II veteran. He was on his knees and he had his arms around one of those crosses, like the cross piece, the cross with the shoulders. You shouldn't have done that. And his wife and his daughter were with him. And I said, was that one of his friends? And she said it was his best friend. And he got killed right beside him on June 6th. And it's the first time he's gotten to visit him. 
I've never seen anything like that. That, that sounds like the, the climactic scene of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. When he asks But it was real, right in front of me. That's his wife. What, have I been a good man? Yeah. Have I earned it? But I was just... You know, all these crosses, and there he is. And, uh, I normally don't tell that. Can you imagine that? How do you go back? I mean, they went in to get service together. It was his best friend. You're 18 years old and he's dead. Just like that. <clears throat> How has this whole deal changed you? <laughs> well, it has teeth. <laughs> it bites you at times. Uh, it's very time consuming. And emotionally, when, I mean, these guys were my friends. We. We went, all these little World War II veterans, well, all these World War II veterans uh, from around here and even some in other states that I worked with, you know, we became friends and I went to way too many funerals, spoke at way too many funerals. Uh, it kind of gets, gets to you when you start kind of having your dad die. You know, hundreds of times. Maybe that's not a fair analogy, but in some respects, it's completely fair. And because that's how you, you tie them all together. Um, but on the other side, you know, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I have huge satisfaction that I didn't just sit around and think about something and not do it. That you, I don't know how many times in your life you get an idea that you know is going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be beneficial. It's not to go out and make money on. And it's to do something that's right, and you get to do it. I've been on a great ride and gotten to meet a lot of good people, got to get a lot of satisfaction out of pulling friends together and watching how hard they work and how committed they are and that's been incredible I mean, you saw firsthand the finished product you didn't see the hundreds of hours that come into executing you know eight hours on the ground and the dozens in your case of volunteers who are, are investing their time their passion, and I dare say their hearts in uh -huh. this process. There wasn't a person there that's heart is not in it because they're, they're not, they got other stuff to do. They're doing it because they want to do it. And they love these guys. There's, I mean, the doctors that are there, the EMTs that come, the, you know, it, it's the passion for them 
each generation. And it's kind of fun to have a blend of World War II, Korea, Vietnam. <coughs> and there were a lot of um, veterans from the War on Terror that volunteered to come. Some pay. We try not to let them, but some pay to be a guardian and help support. And you see that camaraderie between a World War II veteran, because we had a World War II veteran and a lieutenant colonel from the Marines that's, you know, young, that was in uh, Afghanistan, and that he was responsible for the World War II veteran and that bond they have. It was really cool to see because I never served, so I don't have that piece. When you merge these two generations together and you watch them talk, I mean, this guy had been taking him to dinner and doing stuff. He didn't just say, I'll pick you up Saturday morning. We'll go on the trip. And how do you do? You know, they form a bond. We, we tell them being a guardian is not a one-day job. You know, we want you to be friends. And I'm going to stray here a minute. So far so, so that we had one guardian that was guardian for a World War II veteran. This was back when we first started. And the World War II veteran and his wife had had a child late in life. And when the child was born, it was severely handicapped. And they were worried, because they didn't have any other relatives, what was going to happen to their son when they died. Well, this guardian became so close with them that he became the guardian for their son. And when they died, he took care of the son. How do you process one spark at least all this? I don't think about it. I really don't. You just look ahead. Just look at what's next. I don't ever think about it. Just don't. Well, thank you, Jeff, and, and thank you for your service to your country, because that's what this is. Appreciate it. Thanks, Keith. Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American Achiever.